have been recording for approximately 30 minutes, or so I thought. Um, we... Audacity did this fun thing where it decided, hey, I'm gonna use the drive you use that's, like, basically full, and I'm just gonna record that, and then I'm not gonna tell you in, like, an audio cue or anything, despite the fact that you have one monitor, that you are no longer recording. Uh, so, we're gonna probably breeze through the intro of everything. Uh, this is It'll Wash Out, a Bleach Rewatch podcast that is not about Bleach this week. This is about the movie Kick-Ass from 2010 by Matthew Vaughn. It is indeed. I am your co-host, Quinn. I'm gonna be here with you on this ride today. Yeah, um, so... A bit of a disclaimer, because we are going to have to go through the intro of this movie again, Mm -hmm. Uh, and we're going to probably speed through the intro just so we don't have to sit here for another 30 minutes talking about it. We'll try to hit the main points we talked about. Um, This movie has a lot of problems. It is rated R. Uh, It is pretty frequently homophobic and has some racial politics that are not, not great. Um... It also has some dalliances with ableism, as well as one transphobic joke. Yes. Um, And just, it is generally that sort of streak of 2010's problematic comedy. Yes. I would also uh, like to mention that the movie does open on suicide, um, and it is probably just a good idea to go ahead and put the disclaimer for suicide mentions at the very least in this film. Um, mm-hmm. With that, though, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. Uh, the movie opens on a question. Superheroes real? And immediately just dashes the hope um, by having an opening shot of a man uh, in a winged super suit uh, as his wings spread and he jumps off the building and falls to his death. Um, the, the joke is there. Um, he does die. And then immediately after our narrator, Dave, who is the main character goes, that's not me. That is an Armenian with mental health problems, which immediately sets the tone for this film. It is pretty much spot on for setting the tone, especially in as much as, its treatment of comedy, which is it took a joke that sort of works fine on its own, and then it blasts it out and makes it longer and more problematic than it needed to be. The writing in this movie is very much like, hey, we have a joke, so we're going to try and play off that joke by repeating like two or three lines of kind of awkward dialogue that's just like our comedy style it's almost like a it almost feels like a michael cera uh esque sort of comedy style which is funny because in our original recording Mm -hmm. i had situated this movie as being a part of like the legacy or the cultural moment of super bad yes and super bad has Michael Sarah in it. It also has Christopher Mintz Plass, and Christopher Mintz Plass plays Chris D'Amico in this movie. Okay, okay. Yeah, I think my wife actually pointed that out to me. I just forgot. And it was absolutely so that people would see the previews or whatever and say, hey, that's McLovin. Yeah, I think that's probably exactly why they did it. 
Um, our main character is pretty pretty immediately ousted as a loser. Um, he's just a guy. The movie instantly dates itself because he says he doesn't even have 3,000 followers on MySpace, and it also frequently uses iPhone 4s, um, or some model similar to that. They are pretty old iPhones, and it is running on an older version of iOS that is pretty obvious if you've ever looked at an iPhone. He frequently Skypes with his friend Todd, and jacks off in his bedroom, uh, and also fantasizes about his homeroom teacher a lot. Uh, there is a scene where he is in homeroom and uh, she talks to him in a vaguely sensual tone and he basically comes in his pants. Um, yep. It's a lot uh, to open this movie with. Uh, one note I do want to make that I don't think we made in the originals, uh, the original recording. If nothing sure. else, the soundtrack for this movie bangs. Yeah, the soundtrack's pretty good. Like, I, I like the soundtrack a lot. Absolutely. Um. His main love interest is a girl named Katie Doma, uh, who we first see as Dave uh, goes to his locker, and uh, she basically looks directly at him and then says hi, and he says hi back, but it turns out she was actually talking to her friend Erica, who was behind him, which just like furthers the point that, oh yeah, Dave's a loser. He's a big, big loser. He lives alone with his dad, uh, but is also really into comics. And has the question, why nobody's superhero? Which his friends answer uh, pretty directly, because it is psycho and you would get hurt and killed. We had, in the original recording, a brief discussion about the fact that Dave is into comics and into nerdy stuff, but he's kind of into a little bit of everything, and the, the movie never really leans far into one direction or another on it. Yeah, they definitely frame him as being this weird sort of middle of the road character. They try to make him an everyman to avoid him, I guess, being too nerdy. But he's also nerdy enough to be obsessed with comics to the point that what he wants to do is dress up in a costume and hit the streets doing real life superhero shit. Yeah. Uh, so it's a it's a little bit muddied in that regard. Absolutely. Like, the movie wants you to believe he is a comic book nerd, but I am 90% sure we never see him reading a comic book. Which is fucking wild, because there are characters that read comic books in this movie, including his friend group, and a cop at one point. Yes, his friends are very, very nerdy, and they mostly do hang out at a comic book shop, but they do a very... He himself specifically does a very small amount of actual engagement with comics. Yeah, I I don't think we mentioned this during the initial recording, but it, it's like this very weird joint comic book shop slash like cafe um, that seems to just be like a cool hangout spot. And like, you know, if nothing else, this movie made me want, I want to fucking go here. I want to go to this kind of comic store. That sounds cool as shit. Yeah, I feel like there was a cultural moment where this sort of thing was sort of ascendant it was maybe even a little bit after this movie where you'd get like board game cafes mm. and and shit like that i think there's one of those near me yeah so they exist but it's definitely a strange place especially for like the teens to have as their primary hangout yeah um it also does kind of bring forth one of the weirder questions about this movie for me uh 
which becomes much more prominent uh, with Nick Cage's character, because Nick Cage is in this movie. Um, but uh, there are a lot of times where characters have money that I feel like they shouldn't have, because I know at this age, I would not have the money to be regularly going out and buying comic books and spending on, like, superhero supplies um, and going to a cafe regularly. Because uh, I'm, yeah. I'm, like, 99% sure there is zero mention of Dave having, like, any sort of allowance or a part-time job, and I'm, like, pretty sure he's, like, 17. I think, yeah, he's he's a senior, I think, if not a senior, then a junior in high school. Mm. And he is definitely framed as being poor. Yeah. There's a contrast specifically, at least as not being rich. He's in a single-income household. So he just lives with his dad, and they sort of look at Chris D'Amico, who's about to enter this scene, as a sort of aspirational figure because he comes from money. Yes. So Chris does walk into this scene, and I I feel like this is a good place to jump in with this, keep on breezing through. Chris jumps into the scene and the friend group is like, all right, Dave, well, you're the main character. So you go talk to him because if we can get Chris to be our friend, then nobody's ever going to fuck with us because he's rich. So Dave's like, all right, I'll I'll go do it. Um, And he goes and he gets up and goes to talk to Chris and Chris sort of smiles at him. But then Chris's big black bodyguard um, comes up and says, fuck off. Uh, and is, I, I believe this is the first person of color we see in this movie. Uh, and this also sets the tone uh, for the way this movie is going to treat people of color. It has really bad racial politics. It yeah. feels like it especially doesn't like black people specifically, but it also does a lot of stuff with uh, like Latinx folks yes. that are pretty bad. It It's racial imaginary and and politics are just bad it's fucked up i'm i'm pretty sure that every single person of color we see except for marcus is a criminal yes i think so i i'm i'm yeah i i do not recall any other people of color in this movie um uh but, 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 but there is erica cho Oh, yeah. No, I forgot about her because she's barely in this movie. Um, Yes, she exists, but is very, very minor, right? So you have your main characters, and then even most of your secondary characters are white. Yes. It tends to be tertiary and one-off characters who are people of color. Yeah, no, I struggled to keep the name straight of anybody in this movie because it barely says any of them. Uh, Like, I don't know. It's just fucking weird. Absolutely. I didn't recognize that the main character's name was Dave, or I didn't remember that the named character's name was Dave until the very end of the movie where they uh, say the name again. He introduces himself at the very end of the movie, and I'm like, oh, right, his name is Dave. It's not some other equally generic sounding name. Yeah, it it's like they, I, I don't even think they said his last name at all until the end of the movie, and he's like, that's me, Dave Lazuski, and I'm like, okay. He says it, I think, in the opening bit of the movie. I think he says it at the very beginning and the very end. Okay. 
That makes sense. I funny aside about this, sure. I do think I do think there was a large portion of time where uh in the lead up to us watching this movie for realsies, uh I was convinced that his name was Wade Watts, and then I realized that was the fucking Ready Player One guy. Oh, it is the Ready Player One guy. Yeah, um, which I have read that entire book. Do not read that book. Uh, it's bad. Yeah, I've managed to avoid doing that so far in my life. There is a scene in that book where out of nowhere, uh, with zero mention of Wade Watts having any experience playing guitar, he does just pull out a guitar and play the entirety oh of 2112 by Rush in the book. Oh, what a fucking asshole, too. What a nerdy <laughs> fucking thing to do. Oh, I like progressive rock. I like progressive rock, Quinn. <laughs> the problem isn't liking progressive rock. The problem is that being like the thing that he busts out. He's like, oh, because there's this uh, there's this imaginary tied back to a particular time in Ready Player One, right? Like there's mm-hmm. this focus on like the the 80s. There's a little bit of 70s stuff in there. You could have played some like Black Sabbath or something. No, you bring out fucking Rush, which. A thing about progressive rock, I am not even a music person particularly in terms of knowing a lot about music, Yeah, but I do know that progressive rock, one of the things that makes it progressive is that it's highly technical and experimental in a lot of cases, which means 2112 is probably a technically difficult piece of music to perform. It is about 20 minutes long, I believe, and is in seven parts. Uh, So yes, it is quite technical um especially to play alone on a guitar it is very much a piece that i feel uh requires the full band to really uh really shine so playing it alone on a guitar uh that's something but this is not about ready player one Thank no, no no fucking no. christ i probably would have just said no if you said can we do this about ready player one yeah i the thing is i i don't I think the movie's worse than the book. Um, Oof. Yeah, it, it's bad. Um, but uh, after this scene of Chris, uh, Chris's bodyguard, uh, basically showing up and being like "fuck off," uh, we get another scene where Dave's friend group is mugged uh, by at least one person of color. Um, and somebody watches from the window. Uh, Dave is like, I don't fucking get it. How can you just watch something like this happen? Be honest with yourself, audience. Would you do anything different? It's very interesting in as much as it seems to be built on a lot of the bystander effect stuff. It's, it seems like... I don't remember if this was in the original comic or not, which I did read after watching the film. Oh, this this time you did? No, when I was, like, 16. Okay. But it seems like, uh, especially this scene, right, the way that it's framed here in the movie, don't remember if Mark Miller and John Romita Jr. did this. It's specifically sort of evoking the bystander effect and the Mm. story on which that is sort of predicated. Yeah. Which is a spurious, at best, is my understanding of the actual account of what happened there, where someone, I believe, was assaulted and a bunch of people looked on. 
uh, or stood by, uh, including from, like, apartments looking down on the street, which is where we see this guy framed. Yeah, I... I do think this is an effective way to do this. Um, I... It does end up going into some of the things about this movie that I do like, actually. Because Dave, at this point, is like, no, it's time for somebody to make a difference, and that somebody is going to be me. We do get a cut to Frank D'Amico, who is the main antagonist of this movie, um, in a lumber warehouse, uh, as he is interrogating one of his own men with the mob. Um, I do have to make a quick jump in here to say something, and that is that Frank D'Amico is played by Mark Strong, mm -hmm. and this is one of the few roles that I've seen Mark Strong in where I don't ask myself the entire time I'm watching the movie, is this Mark Strong or Stanley Tucci? That's fair. That's fair, honestly. I I cannot tell those guys apart. I could have sworn... So Mark Strong returns in his next film, Matthew Vaughn's next film, I believe, Kingsman and its sequel. Okay. I thought the entire time I watched the first movie, at least, that it was Stanley Tucci. So. See, I... I, I, I don't think I'm very familiar with Stanley Tucci or Mark Strong. Uh, so They look I'm like the same guy. I, I'm they looking are, up Stanley Tucci right now. They're both white men with a relatively square jaw and a particular kind of nose. Yeah, no, I'm seeing it right now, and these are the same guy. Have you ever seen Stanley Tucci and Mark Strong in the same room? I certainly haven't. <laughs> But um, we get the information as he's interrogating his own man uh, from the mob. Uh, he's like, why the fuck is our product missing? What's going on? And it turns out there's a guy that's been going around dressing like Batman and fucking with the mob. Um, and the there is a funny joke here. Like, I thought it was pretty good. That, like, the other people on the mob keep bringing up Batman, and the guy who's being interrogated is like, I never fucking said Batman. <laughs> Which, I, I thought that bit was funny. Like, this sure. was one joke I thought, like, was okay to repeat, because it, it did just kind of emphasize it. And I this was mm -hmm. one case where this style of comedy worked for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, After uh, basically telling his men to off the guy, though, he gets in his car with his son Chris... And they go see a movie, and then it immediately falls with a joke that goes on for far too long. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, Dave gets his superhero costume online. He orders, like, a wetsuit and, like, batons. And he's like, yeah, this is what I need. This is what's going to happen. And his outfit looks pretty fucking dumb, but it's a comedy movie, so I'll let it slide. Meanwhile, we get a scene with Nick Cage as he shoots his daughter with a gun to train her to wear a bulletproof vest. And we made quick note uh, that if you did not know what was happening in the scene, this would be very shocking upon uh, first watch until the reveal happens that she is wearing Kevlar and is okay. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he is just training her for the feeling of what it feels like to take a bullet while wearing Kevlar. Which says a lot about the kind of guy that Nick Cage is playing in this movie. Why would you need to train a seemingly 10 or 11 year old girl to withstand a barrage of bullet fire? Yes. And why would you want them sensitized to that particular feeling? I, I thought upon going into this movie that uh, the majority of the stuff between Nick Cage's character and Chloe Grace Moretz's character, uh, I thought it would work a lot more for me upon going into this viewing of this movie, because uh, we had both seen this before mm-hmm. uh, at a much earlier time, uh, and I guess we've both read the comic too, which is good to know. But uh, I, there were parts of their relationship, their father-daughter relationship, that do really work for me, and there are parts that mm-hmm. really, really don't. Um, yeah, I think, and this is part of the problem with this movie's orientation in general, right? We're, we're going to talk about, and I know that you bring me onto a podcast and I wind up talking about the political imaginary of whatever the fuck we're watching. I'm sorry, I can't help it, I'm addicted to it. That's why I like having you here. Um, but there, there is this thing that it's doing right where it is viewing what Nick Cage is doing. There, There's little intrusions or little incursions where you can view it as being fucked up and bad that he's doing mm-hmm. this to a child. They even have one character at one point step in. Uh, Chloe Grace Moretz's character, her name is Mindy. We don't learn that for a long time, but her name is Mindy. Mindy's other father figure sort of steps in and is like, hey, it's fucked up, you shouldn't be doing this. And... The movie just breezes right past it. (laughs) Right, Nick Cage in the movie, by extension, right? Like, not everything a character says is the movie parroting back its politics or its perspectives directly back at the audience. But you can sort of take a holistic view of the way that they portray what Mindy and Nick Cage's character do as being cool and badass and kind of fun. Um, And the fact that Nick Cage's retort is basically, it's not my fault, it's the fault of criminal scum particularly Frank D'Amico, where it creates this entire network of excuse for this kind of abuse, where it's not even saying that it is particularly regrettable, almost. They just want you to think that it's fucking badass. They really do. I don't think there is a single point in this movie where it appears that Nick Cage's character regrets his actions. No. And they don't portray that as being sad or sick or worthy of condemnation. Absolutely not. In in this scene, we do uh, get like a fun little thing in their father-daughter relationship where... Um, he he tells her, like, she has to take two more rounds and then they'll get going. Uh, and she basically makes him promise to get her ice cream and take him to a bo- take her to a bowling alley. Um, and uh, the movie cuts when he fires a bullet at 
at her and basically is like, yeah, we can do that. Um, and you know, I'll just, uh, as long as you don't whine or anything, like we'll do that. Uh, and then at the bowling alley, she like fucks with him and is like, I want, uh, I want a Bratz doll set for my birthday. And you know, I want a puppy. And then she literally just says, I'm just fucking with you. I want a butterfly knife. I'm like, okay, that's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I do think uh, Chloe Grace Moretz's uh, performance in this movie is pretty spectacular. Uh, she does a really good job. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think her and Nick Cage are probably the two standout actors in this movie, which is a very weird thing to say when they are not the very, very main characters of this film. Sure. And I feel like in some ways this is probably a controversial Nick Cage role, not because of the politics behind what he's doing, which, again, are are kind of messed up. And -hmm. I guess to be clear, because of the way that I phrase that, just in case anyone misreads it, which I I doubt I'm talking about what Nick Cage's character is doing, what not what Nick Cage, the man <laughs> is doing. I just forget his name. Yeah, his name is Damon. Damon McCready. So what, not what Dame, not what Nick Cage is doing, what Damon is doing. Um, But what Nick Cage brings to this performance is one of his more chaotic sort of performances where uh kit you had said that he has a weird accent in this movie and i didn't remember it at all and he does but he also doesn't it's it's interesting because i think there is one scene in particular that was very burnt into my well burnt is a poor choice of words there um right no but that but- one he is going off in a very strange accent. I wrote those words down in the very sparse notes that I took because it was confusing. It was disorienting. It was a strange choice. Thank God. Um, but uh, it, it's not that he has an accent. It's that he tends to talk in a sort of stilt, like a stilted mm-hmm. intonation, where he has yes. very strange pauses in between words or will say certain things with like a very strange cadence to them. It, it's it's also pretty staccato. So it'll be like yes. that, that in his delivery. Yes. Which and almost it, feels like Nick Cage is bringing a level of insight to the character. Yes. And and embodying him in a way that the rest of the film doesn't necessarily understand him. Absolutely. Which I think is interesting. I'd be, I'd, I'd genuinely be interested to hear what Nick Cage was thinking as he crafted that performance and how much of that was in conversation with Matthew Vaughn, how much of that was him, you know, doing his own internal character work and the kind of conclusions that he he might have drawn about what kind of person Damon is. Because there's a part of me that suspects that um, the movie doesn't even center the trauma that Damon undergoes that much in what it does, in the narrative that it crafts around him. And I feel like that might have been something that Nick Cage, like, latched onto 
and really sort of built out from. Yeah, Nick Cage does a lot of work for this character that the movie does not do. Um, and it, it is interesting because you, you bring up his character's trauma, and it it is a trauma that is very, very briefly touched upon in uh, a later scene uh, that basically explains here's what happened, and then it never really goes further than that. Um it's it's very strange, but I feel like Nick Cage read that backstory and went, okay, got the character, and then uh, just fucking went for it. And I think he knocked it out of the park. I think he did mm-hmm. a great job. Absolutely. We get a scene of Dave as he gets his uh, outfit, like, actually, like, he actually receives the package. Uh, and he, like, uh, dons his suit under his normal clothes, you know, in typical superhero fashion. And he draws superhero stuff in class, comes up with the name Kick-Ass, and he trains in an alleyway and on rooftops in a very clear callback to Spider-Man 1 from Sam Raimi. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, very clear aside as he's like running across a rooftop and preparing to jump across like in between rooftops. Uh, but he immediately stops and says, oh, fuck. And uh, it's the movie making clear to us that he's just a normal dude. Right. I also want to go back to him drawing in class because yeah. he's in class with his homeroom teacher and the movie is sort of making an implicit statement here about the way that his attention has shifted in a way that like I don't really like Freudian analysis. Uh, Who does? Bro- broadly, <laughs> Slavoj Zizek. Oh, fair. Um, <laughs> some people, <laughs> some people genuinely do really like Freudian analysis, and it's never really gelled with me from a therapeutic or sort of media analysis mode. Um, but this does argue implicitly that there is like literally a sublimation of his sexuality to a productive end mm-hmm. um which i think is it's definitely something that the movie is doing that i think is notable because i feel like that read is made incredibly accessible in that scene even though it's very brief in a way that I, I find uh, very interesting, because like I said, I tend not to like, and I tend to resist those reads, and I don't know if I even agree mm. with that read necessarily, but it does seem to be something that the language of the movie is doing. Absolutely. I, I think I agree with you that it's trying to do that, even if like that's not my read on the scene particularly either. Uh, but I do agree that I think the movie is trying to do that in a weird way. Um, it just doesn't seem confident in its own step to do that mm-hmm. because it's it's more interested in playing off another superhero movie that we've all seen um which for the most part i think it playing off spider-man one works yeah um i don't think it's like the funniest decision they could have made but like it it does work um after the scene uh he's like preparing to go home Uh, But he sees the guys who mugged him and his friends uh, as they're breaking into a car, and he decides it's finally time. Uh, So he he backs off because they see him, you know, in 
just his regular street clothes. Uh, and then he goes into an alleyway and makes sure he's uh, in in his suit and that his clothes are ditched. Uh, and he comes up and he confronts the guys uh, and is kind of like embarrassed and ashamed about it uh, at first because the two guys kind of lay into him being like, who the fuck are you? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but he does stand up to them and immediately gets stabbed. Um, and then the two muggers are like, oh, fuck, we just stabbed that guy. And they just run away. Um, and then Dave is like, all right, well, I guess I'm just going to go try and get to somewhere safe. So I'm going to walk across the street. I've just been stabbed. Uh, and then he immediately gets hit by a car. Uh, and the driver sees that he hit somebody and goes, oh, fuck, and drives away. It may have been the same guy who looked on. It might have been. It might have been, actually. Yeah, I I didn't think about that, but I think that might actually be the case. Um, yeah, my, I think... my wife pointed that out to me. Okay, cool. Thank you, Quinn's wife. Um, I, I think there are two things here where the movie is kind of at war in my head. Um, because I think the view that the movie is taking at this point is incredibly cynical. Um, I Mm -hmm. think it's incredibly cynical that he tries to stand up to somebody, but because he is just a normal guy, uh, he gets fucked up and rushed to the hospital. Um, what I do like is the movie's insistence that it is the right thing to stand up to these people. Um, and while I don't necessarily agree with that in the terms of, like, petty thievery or muggers, although, like, I think there are cases where that can certainly be the right thing to do, uh, it does not have any interest in being like, what are these muggers situations? Why are they doing this? You know? Um, That is, that is a huge piece of what's going on in this movie, and part mm -hmm. of the superhero genre writ large and the phenomenon of real life superheroes. Yes. Where, and real life superheroes, there's a lot that that's going on there. There's different folks who do it, but looking specifically at the lens that this movie is taking, it is sort of painting this very, very cynical view of the world. And one that demands a sort of rugged individualistic um, disruption or interference into that state of the world in order Mm. to make things better, which happens through sort of taking that pain onto oneself that I think is potentially messy and problematic and sort of misses the point again because you're looking at people who are through various circumstances usually of societal um construction reduced to or pressured into situations where what they need to do to survive is commit various acts of crime and it it just sort of ignores that and says, yeah. a person who does a crime is bad. Yes. And must be sort of punished for that. It is a very sort of carceral uh, in that 
in that sense. And I think that there's stuff to say about what it does as it shifts its focus from muggers and drug dealers or what have you to the mafia. But I'm Mm. not sure that the movie manages to sufficiently sort of expand or or provide nuance in that argumentation. Absolutely. It is sort of uh, an extrapolation of what these people are doing on the streets into this broader organized system. It, and mm-hmm. it's not a concern of other systems reflecting back down or creating situations where people need to do this thing. It's a bunch of evil or selfish or sadistic people joining together. Which, even for something like the Mafia, isn't really the case. Yeah, it's... It's interesting, because this movie's view of evil uh, does seem to be petty thievery and uh, drug dealing. Because even the Mafia, their main export is drugs. That is exactly what they are doing. Um, And... Well, I don't necessarily think, like, hard drugs should be on the streets. Um, like, I think those, that's a whole can of worms that I don't feel educated enough to... Sure, we don't necessarily need to, yeah. Yeah, I I don't have a full thought on that. It's just, like, I, I don't necessarily think that hard drugs should be on the streets. I don't necessarily think that addicts are bad people either. I think mm-hmm. there are a lot of good people who are in those situations. Um, but the movie is not interested in that. It is just interested in painting anyone who deals drugs is bad. Um, and I, I think that's an extremely narrow worldview to have. Especially when what it does is then it has emerging in these contexts the people who are engaging in these behaviors largely being people of color. Absolutely. Especially when it deals with these people as sort of being, um, like, irreducibly evil. Like, evil is a thing you are, not a thing you do, not a condition of systems. It is a thing sort of inside of you that you are or you are not. And these people are evil, and a huge proportion of them just happen to be people of color. And that's bad. That's a fucked up bad way to view things and then again there is a sort of intrusion here and i guess this is getting some stuff that is i i might say at different points of the film out of the way hopefully i won't have to like retread this stuff Mm -hmm. but it it does in intrude upon that with some of the arguments about the mafia but it does it again in this way that seems to reinforce Like, this is other evil people taking advantage of opportunities they see through Mm. sort of harnessing collective power of evil people, not through taking advantage of um, conditions of poverty or structural oppression. So, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, it's, it's extremely problematic but this is also something I think we can say about a lot of the superhero genre. Mm. Um, not 
not irreducibly, I'm not saying that this is the entire foundation of the entire superhero genre, but especially when you're dealing with a, let's call it post-Reaganite uh, political imaginary, especially yeah. in film, you're going to get a lot of that. For sure. It's also common in cop shows and that sort of thing. Like, it's it's this whole broad thing. But it is particularly notable here. Like, we can really look at this, and this is a nice sort of crystallization um, or, like, stating of some of these things through the way that the movie does what it does. Yeah, it's... I, I think to, like, finalize the touching on, like, the uh, racial politics, and, like, I'm sure we will probably... Uh, probably have to uh talk about it like very briefly as it comes up like just kind of point it out Mm -hmm. um is this film has this tendency to other those who are not like base white you know um and i don't even necessarily mean just people of color either um because i believe and we we get the main character's name, Dave Lazuski, uh, like twice in the film. And I could be completely wrong here. And if I am, please somebody correct me. But to me, uh, the name Lazuski, uh, kind of, uh, gives me the idea that Dave is Jewish. Um, or at least his family's origins are in Judaism. Um, if not I, Jewish, Polish. Yes. And there are Polish people who are Jewish, just to yes. to be clear, but one or both of those, probably. Yes. Um, and I believe that is probably a direct homage to, like, characters like Spider-Man, um, because this movie really fucking has a hard-on for Spider-Man. It loves Spider-Man so goddamn much. Um, but... Um, in contrast to that, the main villain... And the villains we deal with, uh, I believe, are Italian in origin, which is extremely stereotypical for it, it to is, be like... Yeah, <laughs> when when people joke about, like, anti-Italian discrimination in film, like, this is it. Like, this is incredibly... Yeah. This, this form of... Um, it has been, like, subsumed by whiteness... But there is this sort of character of of the Italian criminal that is playing out here. Yeah, like, um, because it's not like Frank D'Amico does an accent or anything, because he doesn't. But his mob are the Italian mob. And a lot uh, of his boys do the accent. They do do the, like, Brooklyn Italian accent. Oh, what are you doing here? You want to yes. smoke some fucking cocaine? Literally that. Um, and the other mob that they frequently reference are the Russians. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are the two mafias we frequently hear about, and they're the only two mafias that I am aware of that exist in this film. Um, and I don't know, it's just, it is incredibly, incredibly bad to me that every character, uh, aside from Erica, uh, who is, like, an, quote, other in this movie, 
is a villain of some sort, except for Dave and Erica. Um, and the only reason I think Dave is even, like, potentially Jewish is because of Spider-Man. I'm 90% mm-hmm. sure. To continue on with the movie, though, because, wow, we got on along aside. Yeah, I'm hoping that's a big chunk of the commentary that needs to be For made sure. about the movie, because that's what think... so much of my problems with the movie comes down to that stuff. Absolutely. We're still on page one of five, my friend. All right, yeah, let's let's kick it into high gear. Let's kick it into gear. So, basically, after getting rushed to the ER... Uh, We see a man get led into a nice building by a doorman, and it turns out it's Frank's building with his penthouse at the top. He tells Frank they have stuff to discuss, and Chris tries to join in, but gets told no, uh, because he's too young for this sort of business. Supposedly, the man that Frank had killed earlier, the one he was like interrogating about this Batman character, is somehow still selling drugs? Somehow? Uh, which is a plot point the movie never addresses. It never addresses how this is happening or why. Yep, it just sort of breezes past. It feels like it could have been cut. It should have been cut, because it just leaves this air of mystery as to what the fuck is going on there that never gets answered. And I frankly, could have been really interesting. But in his own armory, uh, Nick Cage's character Damon... Uh, paints a comic book picture of Frank in his armory, and it is his daughter's birthday. Uh, She opens her butterfly knives as Damon quizzes her on weaponry and John Woo. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It it sure is a scene. Um, Like, I I do like the way he, like, quizzes her. Like, it does very much frame Chloe Grace Moretz's character as, like, intelligent for being as young as she is, and I I enjoy that. She is great in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Chris plays with a gun in his dad's office, you know, pretending to be the mob boss, uh, before getting a phone call and being like, oh, this is for my dad. Uh, So he goes into their, like, family dojo that I guess they have. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, Frank gets informed of a new industrial microwave that is in this lumberyard for some reason. Very strange. I have zero clue what a lumber business would need with an industrial microwave. It is unclear whether this is something that the mafia ordered or if this is something that the front business ordered um, because the mafia seems surprised to have it. Um, But they're like, all right, well, I guess we're going to use it on this Russian mobster. Uh, And they do. And there's like a bit where they're like trying to inter- interrogate him while he is in the microwave, but he can't hear them because it's a microwave, and then he blows up. Mm-hmm. It is gross. Uh, it is a scene. Dave now has steel running across all of his bones. Uh, he makes reference to being like, damn, I'm like Wolverine now. Um, and he's back at school. Uh, he says he has messed up nerves now and can't really feel much in the way of pain. Yep. Which... Okay, sure. Katie, uh, his friends actually, like, very, very directly, like, beat the shit out of him, uh, to test this. Like, he's, like, telling them to stop, like, to knock it off, and then one of his friends, I believe his name is Marty, um, 
like gets up with like a lunch tray and smacks him in the back of the head with it and he doesn't even feel it and it's like okay sure we're just going this route katie talks to him directly now uh asking how he is uh and asks him about comic books uh she offers to buy him one and coffee and he's like damn i'm finally getting my chance all it took was me getting hit by a car uh, but then his friends hit him with the reveal that there is a rumor going around that he is gay. I do want to briefly touch down on the fact that this rumor stems from the fact uh, that he had begged the medic in the ambulance not to tell anybody about the superhero costume. His dad does make a very clear question without actually saying it, basically asking if Dave was assaulted. Um, which it was very, very hard for me to tell tonally if the movie was treating this as a joke or not. I think it was. I think it was too. It was just very hard for me to tell. And if they treat it somewhat sensitively as his dad is sort of like dancing around the issue, right? Mm-hmm. And he's trying to like make sure that his, his child is okay. It immediately gets yes. blown up into a joke because of the fact that it turns into a rumor that yeah. Dave is gay because he was found with all of his clothes taken off. And, and it involves a bunch of like weird pointed charged victim blamey homophobic rhetoric. Yeah. Which, again, Oh, these are teenagers. And so you could say, ah, well, you know, teenagers are imperfect and they often find themselves replicating a lot of very harmful rhetoric or or ideology. Mm-hmm. The movie tends to play teenagers as being more um, independent, realized agents than that. This movie listened to the song Teenagers by My Chemical Romance once and then went with it. Yeah. Dave continues training. Uh, he has to go back to being a superhero and now he's more prepared because he's, like, basically uh, invulnerable to pain. Uh, he sets up a MySpace page uh, and then goes looking for a missing cat called Mr. Bitey. Um, and as he's, like, climbing up, like, a billboard where he finds the cat miraculously uh, in the middle of the night, I, I might add, um, there's, like, frequent cuts to, like, criminals chasing, like, a guy through the streets um, we don't ever get any answer to who this guy is or why he's being chased. He just is being chased. Um, he accidentally trips the guy who's being chased uh, as he falls down from the billboard. Uh, and the other guys that are chasing this man uh, start to beat the shit out of him, like the, uh, the guy who fell down. He decides it's time to kick it into gear. Uh, and for once, he actually puts up a fight. Um... He gets asked what his name is at the end of the fight, because basically what happens is this is all caught on camera. Some guy at the, like, convenience store or, like, restaurant. Yeah, it's like a diner or something. It's it's very unclear. Um, It's, like, filled with people. This kid sees the fight happening. Kickass tells him to call 911, and then the kid runs in and is like, yo, this is fucking sick. Uh, let's all record it with our flip video phones. Yeah, yeah that was a time. I, I also <laughs> want to say there's like a main thug in air quotes mm. in this scene. 
who like points a knife at him and is like, you really don't want to do this. One of the things about the way that he's presenting is across his collarbone, he has a giant tattoo that just says addicted. Oh my god, I didn't even notice that. That's the first note that I took in my notebook. I was like, fucking this fucking Jesus tattoo. Christ. Jesus. And like that image, right, of this this man of color standing with a knife saying like, oh, you better back off with the addicted yeah. tattoo. And then this sort of defiant, probably white sort of teenager protagonist being like, uh-uh, is a lot. Kick-Ass here says, I would rather die than let you, like, do this, basically. Which, like, I like that it is a big heroic moment for him. Uh, Like, I tend to like the stuff where it is more about, like, no, I have to stand up for what's right. Like, I am kind of a sucker for that sort of thing. It is one of the reasons, like, I also love Spider-Man. Because his stories are so frequently about him facing adversity uh, in the name of what he believes is the right thing to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And oftentimes Spider-Man handles it better than this movie does, for sure. But um, that, that, that is one of the things I do enjoy about this movie, when it does infrequently get it right. Yep. The uh, kid asks him for his name after the guys walk away because he, Kickass basically says, no, I'm not leaving. They're like, all right, well, fuck this. I guess that's it then. Uh, they don't even stay to fight more, even though they could probably win. Um, but uh, the kid asks No, they get intimidated goes, by his raw power. Oh, you're so right. They see that much like Ichigo, he has resolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> he's got so much fucking Rayatsu is the thing. Yeah, no, his in- incredible spiritual pressure was just too much for them to stand. God fucking damn it. <laughs> um, the kid asks for his name, and Dave goes, "I'm Kickass." Uh, and the video goes fucking viral. Uh, it's all over the news. The guy on the ground thanks him. Uh, his MySpace page suddenly blows up. Uh, and merch is being sold in, like, the comic book store. Even uh, Damon and Mindy see him on the news, as does the D'Amico family. One of my favorite details here that comes immediately after this is that Dave starts answering emails to the Kickass page, but he has to do it in his suit, uh, which I think is incredibly funny, and I don't think that mm-hmm. was intentionally funny. I just think it is very funny. <laughs> It's very funny, yeah. This is also where the transphobia comes in. Yes, uh, there is a newscaster. Uh, it's Craig Ferguson. Oh, okay. I See, I was not familiar. Uh, of late night talk uh, fame. I love to see it. Uh, he basically says that, and by basically I mean like direct quote, says that Kick-Ass looks like a transvestite. Um, which, cool guys, love to have that in my movie. Um... Jesus Christ. Um, He answers a bunch of emails in suit and uh, gets an email from Katie directly to him about that coffee. Uh, And they go to get coffee at the comic book store. uh, And Katie opens up about a problem she has that Kick-Ass could probably solve. Uh, And she's like, wow, usually I'm the one playing therapist. I have never been so vulnerable. 
I'm so happy that like I have a new gay best friend that I can just really be myself with, you know? I hope it's not homophobic of me to say that. Am I being homophobic right now? You're gay and I just don't want to offend you. And it's like, we get it. <laughs> Thank you, movie. Hmm. It really, really leans into that pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. Um, Kickass goes to confront the problem, who is a man named Razul, um, who is a guy that has been stalking and harassing Katie. The door guy lets him in, uh, and I don't know why the door guy lets him in. He basically just says, I have to talk to Razul, and the doorman's just like, I, and fucking lets him in. I'm like, what a shitty-ass doorman, you know? Yep. So, uh, Kickass uh, walks into the room, which is, like, pretty clearly, like, a drug den of some sort, because Razul's a drug dealer. Um... And he, like, asks around trying to find who's Razul, uh, and he meets the guy who is a black dude, uh, who is very aggressive, um, and he basically tells Razul to stay away from Katie. Razul basically goes, and what if I don't, and then gets tased by Kickass, uh, but this only makes Razul more angry as Kickass gets pinned to the ground. Uh, before Razul suddenly gets stabbed with a machete through the chest by Mindy, who is now in costume uh, with like purple hair and a purple suit. Uh, she pretty openly uses very, very foul language in this scene and other scenes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really necessarily want to repeat things she says, not because like they personally offended me, just because like, I don't want to say the C word on this show. Like, yeah, yeah. I feel like that's a, a hard line to have. Like that one's just like even a bit more than fuck, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, But she just fucking mercs everyone in the room except kick ass with ease in uh, a very violent scene as upbeat music plays. Um, And the movie really wants us to have fun with this as all these people are dying. Um, she uh, confronts Kickass, uh, calls his taser gay, uh, and then almost gets hit by the doorman who enters the room after seeing like her blades go through the door. Uh, but her dad, who calls her Hit Girl, uh, snipes the doorman while reminding her to keep her back to the wall. Uh, Hit Girl tells Kickass to follow her, and he does. Uh, they exchanged names, and it turns out that this Batman, played by Nick Cage, is actually Big Daddy. Horrible name. Just Jesus. Awful. It has not aged well at all. Uh, I think at the time this came out, I was still in my phase of thinking Bioshock was an amazing piece of fiction. Ah. Uh, so I was just like, alright, that's fine. But uh, after this, Kickass returns home and realizes, fuck, I'm just a guy, dude. Um, meanwhile, with the mob, Frank looks at a picture of a superhero, and it turns out a bunch of his men were killed tonight, supposedly all by kick-ass, and their product is no longer on the streets. Mm-hmm. Hit Girl and Big Daddy confront Dave in his room and tell him the police could easily find him like they did, uh, using the, like, leftover remnants of the taser that he used. Uh, and they say they like him, but don't trust him. Damon calls him ass kick, which is like 
the weakest fucking nickname you could give this character ever. Mm-hmm. But uh, Kick-Ass at this point feels way in over his head. Uh, the two actual supers tell him he has potential before leaving and telling him to contact them when he's ready. Um, meanwhile, Frank is putting out an all-points bulletin on Kick-Ass, uh, since he's apparently got cops in his pocket, or I guess just one cop in his pocket. But it's like the chief of police, I think. I think. It's, it's kind of unclear. Um, all the while, uh, Big Daddy and Hit Girl murder a guy. Uh, and, like, a car crusher. Um, it really, really wants us to feel like any time Big Daddy and Hit Girl murk a guy, that it's fun and mm-hmm. really cool. Um, but uh, Dave is at Katie's, helping her tan. Uh, and this bit gets a bit uncomfortable, just because things get pretty explicitly sexual between the two of them, and these are high schoolers. So, like, I will be pretty brief about this, but I will be upfront about what happens. Um, He is helping her tan, she is topless, and the camera very clearly focuses on her body uh, from his point of view. She tells him that she hasn't heard from Razul in a week, while Dave is busy trying not to pop a boner, basically. Um, A cop finds Big Daddy's arsenal, and his hit list... Um, apparently this is a man named Marcus, uh, and the movie very quickly goes into Damon, uh, McCready's backstory here, uh, in a comic book format, uh, which is sort of a weird blend of CG and, like, hand-drawn looking art. It doesn't look bad, I don't think, but Mm -hmm. it is a little weird. But it turns out that Big Daddy used to be a cop. But then Frank framed him as a drug dealer, and he went to prison for five years. Uh, his wife in this time, who was pregnant, uh, took a bunch of pills, and uh, in her death, Mindy, or Hit Girl, was born. Well, Big Daddy learned of this news and then started training really hard in prison. Uh, finally, uh, after he was released, he could raise Mindy to be a superhero. Uh, and he apparently wrote all of this into a real, actual, physical comic book. I, yeah, I had completely forgotten that for some reason he's a skilled artist. Like, a skilled <laughs> sequential artist, specifically. Yeah. Um, It's just, it's actively bizarre that he writes it into this real, physical comic book. His own tragic, traumatic backstory... Which Marcus, the cop, easily finds and reads. Like, yep. why the fuck would you just leave something like that out? Very I weird. I get that he's a cop, but like, why would you do that? You do all of these methodical things to like keep yourself from getting caught, both by like the cops and the mob, but you leave a comic book of your tragic backstory just on your fucking like work desk well are you well, kidding me it's specifically yeah because is this the room this is the time where it's a uh, it's his drafting table like he has an artist's drafting table in his room full of guns yes yes and this is in like very clearly like his safe house which it is 
unclear how Marcus found this place or, like, why he was even looking. This is, like, the first time we ever see Marcus. Um, so Marcus, after reading this, like, Damon walks in the room and is like, you need to leave. Um, but Marcus is like, is this how you brainwashed Mindy? Like, is this, like, what you did to get her to, like, be a superhero or whatever? Mm -hmm. Uh, and he, like, warns Damon that Frank is, like, on the lookout for him. Like, he's onto him, and he's got cops, like, on his payroll looking for him. Which, couple points here. One, if we know about the dirty cops, why are we not doing anything about the dirty cops? Like, I realize that Frank D'Amico is probably a powerful man, mm -hmm. but if you very, very frankly know, <laughs> frankly, if you very clearly know that you have dirty cops on the mob's payroll, I feel like it should be pretty easy to get them kicked out. Mm -hmm. Um, Second here, Marcus is like so fucking like spineless about his beliefs on how Mindy should be raised. Yep. In that he, he brings it up here and is like, what you are doing is fucked up. And then he helps Damon anyway. And then says nothing else about the matter, except that it's fucked up one time. Yep. And then the movie moves past it. Exactly. His, pro his protest as the person who raised her for the first five years of her life, means nothing. Absolutely. It is frankly bizarre. I do not know why it was, like, included this way. It feels very poorly thought out in this moment. Um, Damon says he won't stop what he's doing until D'Amico is dead. Uh, and then... We get a scene of Frank in his car being, like, chauffeured around as he sees somebody who is dressed as kick-ass walking around in broad daylight as he greets and high-fives people. Uh, Frank mistakes this for the actual kick-ass, and the camera never makes it clear that it isn't the actual kick-ass. Um, so Frank follows him with his car, uh, and as kick-ass goes into an alley, uh, Frank gets out of the car and goes, Hey, buddy, how's it going? And then kicks him to the head, and... It's very obviously not kick-ass because, like, this is, like, maybe halfway through the movie at this point. Uh, but Frank shoots him and also a random guy who happened to see. Um, who also might be the guy who looked on from the apartment building. Yes, I think that it might be. <laughs> Which is wild to me. Katie is sad that Razul is dead because she's just received the news. Uh, but Dave is like... Oh, don't worry. People like him get mixed up in some bad shit. Um, and Katie's like, it's probably my fault, which Dave denies, saying Kickass probably hasn't even seen her letter yet. Uh, and then Katie's like, man, it sucks you're gay. Out of nowhere. Yep. <laughs> in the scene. She just brings it up. Frank is still on his Kickass bullshit. There's never a scene... Uh, in between these two points where he is told that it wasn't the actual kick-ass that he killed. Uh, he's just like, nope, I'm still looking for kick-ass. I'm sure that wasn't the guy. It was in the newspaper. It shows up in the newspaper. Oh, okay. Never mind then. I, I am wrong. Um, so he's still on his shit and doing a lot of cocaine. Uh, and Chris has a plan. 
Uh, he's going to also dress up as a superhero and become Kick-Ass's friend undercover. Um, Frank agrees Frank agrees to screw over Tony, whoever the fuck that is, to make this happen. Um, and then we get a cut to like the news being like, damn, this local mobster finally arrested by the cops. And I am unclear on how this makes any of this more feasible. I don't know. Like, I, does selling out somebody to the police somehow get you more money? I I don't know. I, I I do not know. I don't know if it's building up like a profile for his for like Chris's hero persona. Oh, that might be what it is. Yeah, I think that it is because I think the I think the thought process here uh, and the movie just kind of breezes past this, so it's incredibly muddy and hard to understand fully. Uh, if you're not like paying full, unadulterated attention to it. But I, I think it is straight up like implied that Chris's superhero persona is the one who took this guy down. So I think you are right. Katie walks into the comic shop and greets Dave and friends as a new superhero. Red Mist is on the scene. It's very obviously Chris D'Amico. And everybody's like, damn, he looks great in a cape. Is that the kind of guy you'd go for, Dave? Because you're gay, right? Like, that is that the kind of guy? And Dave's like, oh, no, not really. Not my type. And then out of, like, jealousy and, like, um, fucking uh, a need to not feel one-upped by this new superhero, uh, he tries out a cape but immediately decides it's not for him. And he is just very jealous of Red Mist. But then gets an email from Red Mist asking to meet up, and he agrees to this. Uh, so the two meet up in an alleyway, and Red Mist is really just fucking laying on the praise uh, in, like, the most obvious way that something is up. Uh, like, I genuinely do not know how you could not see something is up with this guy. Yeah. Uh, like, he is not convincing at all. Um, but he asks if Kick-Ass wants a sidekick, which is a wild thing to insinuate if you've been talking for all of five seconds. Kick-Ass is like, yeah, sure, why not? And, uh, Red Mist reveals that he has a Mustang called the Mistmobile, and it's just fucking loaded with a bunch of shit, including GPS. Oh yeah, he's got that Garmin on board. He really does. It's so Because they treat it as being like a revolutionary thing, which it, it was at the time. It was great to have that, but it was also very funny. It was very funny. Um, I also like that his car has a mist, uh, a mist machine, um, and uh, he smokes weed while driving. He's like, "Damn, I just really like to smoke a J before I uh, hit the streets. Feel it really takes off the edge. Do you want to hit?" And I'm like, "These film writers have never smoked weed in their life, mm-hmm. have they?" Yeah. Like they they they've probably smoked once and been like, all right, I get it, but they've never fucking done it because they don't know how to write about weed. <laughs> the two decide to check out a tip that Red Mist brings up. Uh and who could have guessed it is a trap to get kick ass to the lumber yard where Frank's mob is. Um Frank receives the test the text from Chris. Uh, as he and Kick-Ass jam in the car on the way to a fucking banger song. Um, as it turns out, though, 
the lumber warehouse that Frank's people were in is burning down. Uh, Red Mist runs right in as Kickass is like, uh, I think we should contact the authorities, actually. Um, but everybody inside is dead, even Mikey. Rip Mikey. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is incredibly funny that the only character in, in this warehouse that is named is Mikey. Yeah. I don't know why. It's just very funny. Red Mist grabs a teddy bear uh, that was inside the warehouse for some reason, but he and Kickass escape the building narrowly. Uh, Kickass asks about the teddy, but Red Mist is just like, I don't fucking know, man. I just grabbed it. Chris returns to Frank as Frank is convinced that Kickass is the one who burned down the warehouse. Uh, but Chris is like, no, it wasn't him. He's just some pussy. Um, but he reveals that the teddy bear was a nanny cam that Frank had bought when Chris was little to keep an eye on him uh, when he was being like babysat frequently. Uh, and it caught everything that happened. Uh, and we get a decent scene of uh, Big Daddy, like, just fucking murking everyone in this warehouse and lighting it on fire. It is cool. I I do think this scene is cool. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on what's been going on the past fucking page? Because, like, it is a lot of just the movie happening at you. But I want to no, realize I've I mean, been talking a lot. <laughs> it's pretty much what you say. I am I'm grateful that I have ca- captured everything. I just I want to make sure you feel you have the space to talk. Yeah, no, no. I definitely feel like I do. It's just yeah, not a lot has really happened worth talking about here. It's the movie's yeah. happening. It's doing a lot of setup. And then it's about to like sort of go on a big weird diversion. Yeah, like uh this point of the movie is kind of weirdly lax in that it it a lot kind of happens, but there's not really anything particularly of interest past the, like, trauma backstory. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, like, this is all set up, and it's very clearly set up. Um, but uh, we see Big Daddy do the whole fucking deed, and Frank is fucking pissed and wants this guy dead. Um, Marcus, again, tells Damon that Frank is really onto him this time. And Damon is like, all right, well, it's time to take down Frank Mindy. Let's go do this. Um, Dave, at this point, is still feeling way in over his head, and he's ready to give it all up. Um, which I I think is understandable, given that he saw a bunch of guys get fucking murdered. Mm. But uh, there is a weird point that I will wrap back around to later on in the movie. He decides it is time to tell Katie the truth. Uh, and I, I think this bit is probably going to warrant some talking because he goes into her room through the window as she's like blow drying her hair. Yeah. Uh, and he does this in costume uh, and it scares the shit out of her and she like pepper sprays him and like is ready to start hitting him with like a baseball bat. Uh, but I do think it is incredibly impressive uh, that I, I think this is a landmark for the movie industry, possibly a world first, in that we have a joint coming out as straight and superhero scene. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, so he does come out as being kick-ass. Uh, like, he takes off the mask and he's like, I am kick-ass. 
Uh, and she's like, whoa. Uh, and then he goes, and I'm also not gay. And she goes, fuck. And I'm like, all right. Like, we're, we're really just doing this, huh? Yep. Um, and he tells Katie that she's, like, really special, really wonderful, and that she deserves the best, uh, and that he really likes her. Uh, and she, understandably, is a little fucking freaked out. Mm-hmm. But he begins to leave out the, like, out her bedroom door rather than the window, and she's like, you should probably use the window because my mom has the burglar alarm. And I don't know why that fucking matters, considering seconds ago, Kickass was screaming wildly in pain from the pepper spray. Right. But, you know, whatever, I guess. But he's like, all right, cool. And he goes to, like, get out the window. And he's like, I guess I'll just leave this way then. And then she, like, suddenly her tone completely changes on a fucking dime. And she's like, actually, you can stay here. And he's like, like a sleepover? And she just, like, gives, like, a very sensual, no. You know, like, shake of the head, like, no, we're gonna have sex. That sort of thing. Yep. And it's, like, it is so fucking weird. I, Katie is not a character. That's a huge part of this, right? Like, there's this big, weird, uncomfortable deception that's been going on, on Dave's part. There's a there's realistically i think anyone would be quite perturbed by this yes and she is not she just categorically is not she has a minute of like oh what the hell and then by the end of that she's like okay we can have sex yeah it's it's really strange um but it it is very clear in this moment that Katie is not a character and never will be, despite the fact that the movie wants you to believe otherwise. Yep. Um, she is common in the movie, but she exists for Dave to have a love interest. Um, and it is incredibly fucked up that um, he gets in on this rumor that's going around that he's gay and she believes he's gay, and he plays into it to get close to her. Um, it is incredibly predatory and gross, mm-hmm. and it is deeply uncomfortable, and the movie plays the entire thing as a joke, um, that it expects the audience to be laughing with the entire time, and obviously us both being queer individuals yep. i i'm sorry i probably should check that to make sure you are comfortable with the term queer absolutely okay cool um but we are both queer individuals and to us now i'm sure like at the time when this movie came out we were probably thinking this was pretty funny um mm-hmm. but now it is very uncomfortable it's really weird he just gets off scot-free from this point. She, Like you said, she has that moment where she's like very perturbed by it, but then immediately after is like totally fine with the fact that she's been deceived for assumedly weeks, yep. possibly even months, uh, and he has gotten close to her in this time, and although she has gotten to know what he is like as a person, the fact that he is willing to lie 
for that long about something that big, I think should be a huge red flag for anybody. Let alone a teenager. Especially with the way that the movie frames it as a way by which he is granted access, if not to her sexually, to sort of parasexual elements Mm. of her vulnerability, like with the tanning scene. Yes. Um, The movie, Frank frequently makes reference to the fact that she is more comfortable being vulnerable with him because she believes he is a gay man. Um, And it is not clear why she doesn't feel she could be vulnerable with her, like, friends who are women, uh, but it is very clear that she has always wanted a gay best friend, and Dave fills that role for her. Um... But that is the extent of character work we get for Katie, mm-hmm. because from this point on, the only character sh- that she has is, damn, I want to fuck the brains out of Kick-Ass. It, it's really bad. The whole thing's a mess. I don't like it. Yeah, I don't like it either. The whole entire love interest here does not work for me. And this is a really weird dalliance in the plot. In terms mm-hmm. of, I don't feel like it ultimately does all that much to establish or develop any character or theme. Uh, mm-hmm. Aside from, arguably, that f- like semi-Freudian theme I talked about before, where there's this like relationship between kick-ass and sexuality, where to be in a relationship with Katie, for the most part, Means he has to foreclose being kick-ass. Yeah. But he's having come through kick-ass as sort of like a developmental stage, almost. Where he is now, mm-hmm. like, assured of himself. He is ready to engage in, like, age-appropriate, quote-unquote, sexuality. Instead of fantasizing about his teacher. Yeah. I do, because I don't want to be only negative on this movie, and I realize we've been kind of shitting on it a lot, even if we have brought up some positive points. True, yeah. Um, There is one minor detail in this scene uh, where they begin to make out that I do Mm -hmm. actually like quite a bit that I did not expect from this movie, and it's very, very subtle. Um, But when they are making out, there is a point where he reaches for her breasts, and he hesitates, both because he is likely a virgin, but it is also a moment where she is able to give consent uh, yep. to this. And I was surprised to see that, and I was happy I caught that, because I did genuinely appreciate that being in the movie. There is a version of this where he just grabs her boobs and it goes from there, but he hesitates, and she very, very clearly, in her body language, gives consent that, yes, this is okay, and she wants this. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if it doesn't make narrative sense yep. or character sense, I do like that there is that detail of the consent being given, mm-hmm. even if not verbally. Right, and um, and I'll also say, broadly speaking about the movie, we gloss over it because it's um, it's not necessarily very interesting, to go sort of point mm-hmm. by point through a lot of the action sequences and to talk about, but 
but those and like a lot of the rhythms of the movie in general are, are quite pleasurable mm-hmm. to watch. Like it, it goes yes. by. It's a, it's fun to watch. And it, it is very stylish, very stylish. And it moves aside from this part of the plot at a pretty good clip. Yeah, like it, it is pretty for the most part, well paced. Um, I think there are a lot of parts of the plot that they could have expanded on that they didn't, and a lot of parts they expanded on that they didn't need yep. to. Um, but overall, I think the movie feels as though it moves at a brisk pace, and I think that's overall a bit more important. Right, and that is like a very that is something that is like important in its favor. It yes. also tends to be less interesting to sort of talk about. Um, because the action sequences are fun, but there's very few that are, like, also incredibly stand out where you're like, okay, like, let's talk about this sort of beat by beat. The camera transition from the teddy bear into the big daddy scene in the lumberyard is actually pretty cool. The way that you're sitting in the camera from the teddy bear and slowly the shot sort of, like, moves forward and then it shifts from being the nanny cam into being a camera that is sort of, like, dynamically following the fight. Yeah, and, like, the fight, it's, the fights themselves are really, like, choreographed quite well. They're, they're punchy and visceral. Yes. Like, they aren't, they don't linger on the fighting, uh, for, like, too long, usually. Um, like, there are maybe, like, one or two cases in the movie where I'm like, I maybe would have cut, like, a couple of these shots. And it's also before, like, the quasi-Green-Grassian mode of Mm. cinematography really intruded upon action scenes writ large. Like, it was sort of tracking at this point, but it hadn't sort of exploded to being almost the default, where the Born Identity movies had a huge impact on the way that a lot of action scenes were shot, for people who don't know, that was directed by Paul Greengrass. And it is a lot of, because of the way that the movies are trying to convey information about the plot, etc., and fighting in that is supposed to be very, like, tense and chaotic. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of, like, rapid cuts and um, close-up shots. So you're getting a lot of, like, partial information battering you very, very quickly. And you can sort of... Um, Contrast that against something like a lot of um, Chinese action cinema, like your your various uh, wuxia films, or even um, if you go down to Hong Kong, Hong Kong action movies, a lot of those will play with long shots, where yeah. you can see the characters, and I don't only mean long shot in terms of time from cut to cut, but they're also backed out. You're seeing a large range uh, of screen you're usually seeing both people on screen at once and you're seeing those exchanges move mm-hmm. and those are kind of like two poles uh through which yeah. action tends to be done and there's a lot of space in between and outside of that binary but these shots tend to be clean and read well you can follow what the action is for the most part um without feeling like you're tumbling in a dryer which is what a lot of the stuff that the sort of green grass inflicted action scenes, especially when performed poorly, tend to feel like to me. They might even give me a little bit of a headache to try to watch. That's fair. Max, uh, Mad Max Fury Road, this is not, but it does get the job done pretty well. 
Exactly. Um, and I said this to Kit when I was watching the movie. If you're familiar with Matthew Vaughn's um, filmography, there's a pretty direct line between this, particularly the sort of R-rated comedic action and that stylistic flair that exists in this movie. There's a very strong line between that and the Kingsman movies um, that Matthew and Vaughn also did. I feel like I feel like I'm gonna need to check out the Kingsman movies at some point. Uh, for better or for worse, likely for worse yeah. is my understanding. They're similarly uh, problematic. I think that the first one is mm. probably it might be the one that holds up the best. Okay, because it's sort of like a it's a rags to riches sort of story, or like you know, it's English. It's about you know an English secret service, uh, and you're taking this sort of like chav kid and making him into a gentleman alongside yeah. like this you know turning him into James Bond um yeah but the the most recent one that came out uh, i believe last year or maybe it was even this year the king's man um <laughs> it goes off the rails with a lot of this stuff like it is one of the most bizarrely homophobic movies i've seen in a long time <sighs> but but it does it in a way that um it's not quite camp. Like, I... That sounds bad. <laughs> the the way... The character that they use for this stuff... Like, I can recognize it's bad, but it seems like there is a level of fun being had with the entire thing. Um, okay. That being said, it doesn't excuse the homophobia, right? Like, the guy who's playing Rasputin... Yeah. Which is who is, like, the weird homophobic caricature in that movie. It seems like he's having fun, and he has a magnetism on screen, right? The guy okay. draws your eye. And then when that makes sense. when he leaves, the movie stops being as fucking bananas. Um, And th you really feel that. The pacing on that movie is not good. It's a really poorly paced movie, and it feels like a lot of the more objectionable... Uh, politics, both in terms of like high level like politics and representational politics, that sort of thing comes to a head in that movie in some really nasty ways. So it's it's of course. arguably the movie that I would put the biggest like warning on. While all of these should come with a sort of trigger warning for a lot of this shit. Noted. I will. I will keep that in mind. So, um, blah, blah, blah. we are now getting into the uh, third act of this film for realsies. Uh, as Damon and Mindy are planning their hit on Frank, uh, and Mindy finds a thing, uh, that they dance around for the entirety of this third act until it finally gets revealed in like the final battle. Um, that costs $300,000 that they can just buy online, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Um, they never reference, like, any sort of, like, underground dealings or anything. This is just a thing she finds online, and Damon goes, add to shopping cart. Yep. Um, after going, damn, that's cool. Um... And this is part of the point I wanted to bring back from the, like, near beginning of this movie which is 
I don't understand how anybody in this movie fucking affords anything except Frank. Um, Correct. Like, no. Leo. Um, because obviously we have Kick-Ass buying his like wetsuit and like frequently going to like the comic store or whatever, but Damon McCready somehow has $300,000 to just drop on, like, a piece of weaponry. Um, I don't know how he got this money because he was in prison for five years, and since then I have heard nothing of him having any sort of job or actual income. Um, he has never made any reference to, like, doing robberies or anything like that. Well, if the scene with um, Razul was any indicator, what's happening is they're mm-hmm. taking all of their money. Like, they took all the drug money, and they're using the drug money. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I had considered that. I just don't think the movie does a very good job of making that clear. It just kind of says, we have this money. Um, sure. But I think you are right. Um, I think that is probably what is happening. If if that is on screen at all, like I missed it. Yeah, I think that they they grabbed money from Razul. Okay, I I believe you, uh, genuinely. Uh, Katie and Dave are now together. Uh, but it does not seem like the friend group is really clued into it. Like specifically, Marty and Todd don't seem clued into this. Um, but, like, they are very obviously together. I'm pretty sure Katie is, like, sitting on Dave's lap in this scene. Yep. Um, and then they make up some, like, shitty excuse to go have sex, like, behind the comic store. Uh, which seems like an awful place to do that. Uh, right next to a dumpster. Um, and, um, Basically, uh, Katie is, like, very obviously sex-crazed for Dave now. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like, she very, very openly, and I know I said this earlier uh, in the podcast, but she very openly says, I would fuck the brains out of Uh, Mm Kick-Ass. And I'm like, okay, sure. Um, So they blow off their friends. Erica is the only one who's like, it's obvious that they're just going to do stuff. Um, but, uh, he gets home and checks the MySpace page for the first time in, like, a week and finds he's received a ton of emails from Red Mist, who is begging him to meet, uh, so he decides to finally go, uh, and tells Katie, he's like, damn, I'm sorry, I knew I said I was done with this kick-ass thing and it's only been, like, a week, but, uh, I have to go do a kick-ass thing. Um, and she's like, well... I have no agency in this movie, so, like, I'll worry about you, but go for it. Um, and she's like, damn, I care about you, too. They don't even say I love you, uh, which I guess they have only been together for a week, but also I feel it, like, at the level they are having this weird sexual relationship, I feel like that would probably be, like, a big step at this point for how long they have known each other. But, you know, you know, the, the details, details. They're also teenagers, so I kind of get it. True, true. It it could potentially be their first, like, actual serious relationship, but, you know. 
Red Mist tells Kick-Ass that the people who are friends with the guys that uh, at the burned down warehouse think that he and Kick-Ass are responsible and asks if he thinks that the other supers can help them. Um, Kick-Ass is like, I'm not sure, but uh, we get a cut to Damon and Mindy as they get their new toy and go, damn, that's fucking cool. I'm not going to reveal what it is, but it's cool because it has Gatling guns here and it didn't in the pictures. Um, and they get the message from Kick-Ass and they agree to meet at Safe House B. Uh, and they, they got multiple safe houses in this bitch? Mm. Like, um, the wheels of the final art, uh, the final act of this movie really start rolling. Uh, as Damon gets prepped for his big night, we get this big scene of him putting on, like, his fucking makeup. Uh, and Kick-Ass and Red Mist arrive at the safe house. Uh, Big Daddy greets them, uh, reluctantly greeting Red Mist, but being like, it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, Hit Girl uh, is like in the windowsill, and just as Big Daddy's like telling her to mind her manners, uh, Red Mist pulls out a gun and actually for real shoots her. Mm -hmm. Um, And she falls out the window. Uh, It is unclear if in this moment she is dead or not. Uh, but, uh, despite the fact that you think he would remember the fact that she has Kevlar on, uh, Big Daddy freaks the fuck out, and it's like, no, my baby girl! Uh, and very, very easily, without a fight, gets grabbed by Frank D'Amico's men, who also grabs Kick-Ass, um, and they get put into vans, uh, one of them, a big black man, because of course, mm-hmm. uh, grabs a bazooka uh, off the wall of like Big Daddy's armory, and um, they play it off as like a a joke. He he's like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna take this." Yeah, and then Red Mist is just like, "I need you to be fired," um, because apparently part of the deal was that he would do this thing, but uh, he he wanted Frank to leave Kickass alone. Uh, and out of this, um, and Red Mist tells Kickass that he's sorry, um, but he pretty openly, when he gets back to Frank's, tells Frank to let Kickass go. Uh, Frank asks him if he really wants to be a part of this business, you know, running the mafia. Uh, and Chris, whose motivations I'm like not entirely clear on, I do think it is mainly just that. He is this guy's son and wants to make him proud. Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, his response is yes, I do want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of the mafia and make you proud. Yep. Um, so Frank tells him this is about sending a message that being a superhero is bad for you. Uh, so shut up and watch how it's really done. Um, a website gets set up for the unmasking of Kickass. Uh, and it gets spread all over the news uh, as it's like publicized that this is like Kickass's final uh, thing before he retires. Um, Dave's friends wonder where the fuck he is, as Erica's like he's probably with Katie. And Katie sees the website. It's like Dave, why didn't you tell me this is what you were doing? You have to call me, even though the stream goes live in ten seconds. Um, stream does go live. And, of course, it's Kick-Ass and Big Daddy being held hostage by a bunch of masked goons. Um, so, it is a show 
that is played off as like a a kid's educational show in tone mm-hmm. uh, that is meant to educate the people on why being a hero is bad for your health. Um, Frank's men lay into the heroes. They make a bunch of like corny jokes as if it is a kid's program. Um, and it is effectively a torture scene. The news begins to refuse to stream what's live on the internet as they had thought this was just like a thing that was going to be like a publicity stunt, but it is clear that people are in actual danger. Uh, everybody flocks to their computers and flip phones and everything and pulls up the stream. Uh, and Dave is seeing his life, his life flash before his eyes as he narrates. Uh, and he makes the easiest fucking joke about how like if you're thinking that i'm gonna make it out of this fine because i'm the one narrating the scene then you're a smart ass and it's like okay like you don't need to break the fourth wall here this does not feel earned um (laughs) i don't know It, it it's a whole thing um so the the goons pull out some kerosene and they start like dousing kick-ass and big daddy like in the kerosene starting with big daddy um but one of them holds out the lighter and as he does this he gets shot and lights get shot out too the camera then goes to like a first person view of night vision goggles uh as we get a fucking gun on screen and it is a like first person shooter action scene from the perspective of Hit Girl, who is not dead. Surprise, surprise. Um, I I don't think even when I initially saw this movie that I for any amount of time thought that Hit Girl was dead. Um, yeah, it no. Is very, it, it is very obvious. Uh, the movie does this sort of thing a few times where it like tries to shock you or surprise you with like a big revelation. Uh, but it's not confident in its own writing to the point where the revelations actually work or feel earned. They are just there. Mm-hmm. Um, all hell breaks loose in her attempt to save big daddy and kick ass. Uh, and one of Frank's men manages to set big daddy on fire who screams and instructs her on what to do. Uh, this is the biggest scene I remember from this movie. Uh, I think it is probably, one of the better scenes of the movie, mm-hmm. uh, even if I think the action is less clear than in many of the other scenes, just because it is so dark and most of the action happens in like snippets of flashes of light as gunfire like goes out. Yeah. But stylistically, I think it is cool. I would agree with you. It, it's very. Again, it, it's maintaining that stylish thing. It is sort of like. um adding to and accentuating that whole um, treating this like a game element that was established earlier. Yeah. But again, they don't really interrogate that. It's weird. They're sort of playing both sides. I think I think Matthew Vaughn probably plays a lot of Call of Duty, and I'm not just saying that because when we see Razul initially earlier in the movie, he is playing Call of Duty. But I... I do have an interesting note that I did notice about the Razul scene, mm-hmm. which is that he's playing Call of Duty in split screen, but he is the only one playing it. <laughs> it was really weird. It was very strange. 
Um, I believe you said you had notes on what it was that Big Daddy says, um, because at this point he has a very strange accent going on that's somewhere, it's close to, like, southern, almost? Yeah. No, so, yeah, he's, he's really getting the business, and he says, take cover, child! Now switch to Kryptonite! Go to Robin's Revenge! So if you want to know what Nick Cage says in that moment, that's what's going on. Thank you for your incredible voice acting talent. I mean that <laughs> genuinely. Um, I If I ever decide for whatever reason to make a kick-ass video game, oh, I'm going to yeah, use your sure. voice clips. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah no he says all that um but uh the fight rages on um she takes down a bunch of dudes uh and then as the fight ends she puts a blanket over big daddy to try and save him uh before taking out the live stream and swearing at the camera uh marcus smiles uh as he sees this on the live stream uh, Dave's friend Todd, at this point, is like, damn, I think I'm in love. And Marty goes, she looks 11. Yeah, that fucking sucks. Then Dave goes, I vow to save myself for her. Dude. Dude. It's really bad. That's literally all I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, At this point, uh... Basically, Marty is holding Kate, uh, Katie's friend Erica, uh, and he asks if she's okay, and she goes, yeah, I think so, and then kind of, like, fawns over him, and I believe plants a kiss on his cheek out of nowhere? Mm-hmm. There has been no fucking real chemistry between these two characters. We've barely seen them on screen, uh, except for maybe one time where he's like, I'm going to educate you on comic book. Yep. Um like earlier in the movie big daddy and hint girl here share an emotional moment uh as damon tells her that he is proud of her uh and then they exchange i love yous and then he dies i do think this scene is still like effective but because of the because of the way their real relationship is so fucked up Mm -hmm. at its core it is really hard to feel anything other than relief that he is dead. Yep. Um, even though, like, the movie does not paint him as a villain in any sense. Mm-hmm. Hit Girl and Kickass take Red Mist's car, uh, and Dave asks for Hit Girl's name, but she refuses and seems prepared for the future. Um, even though Dave like offers for her to come live with him, which seems like a really bold thing to offer without talking to your single father first um she blames him for big daddy's death uh and then they return to her home uh where there are still two hot chocolates left on the table um she tells him to go uh it's unclear whether she means to go back to his place or to go just somewhere else in the house but uh he takes this moment as her having a chance to pack her things to come live with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she 
uh, basically goes and grabs a bunch of guns and shit, uh, and he goes and gets cleaned up. Uh, he cleans up his face, which is all, like, bloodied. Uh, she is ready to kill Frank D'Amico at this point. Um, and Dave, at this point, finally gets really clued into their real big-time goals of killing Frank D'Amico, uh, and reluctantly agrees to help. Actually, I don't know why I said reluctantly here. He kind of just agrees to help, no questions asked. Yeah, it's true. Um, but for some reason... Even though she was the one super excited about it and the one who bought it, she gives him the instructions for the fancy toy that she and Big Daddy bought for $300,000. She also makes a reference to the fact that when Dave says she has to be prepared for the future, that she has a suitcase with $3 million in it. Yep. Uh, Like, okay, sure. Frank's team prepares for war, and Mindy shows up to the door in a schoolgirl outfit. Uh, they let her in as she pretends to be a lost schoolgirl. I really don't like her schoolgirl outfit, by the way. It feels bad. It really does feel bad. It, it's really, it's very much towing the line between, like, the sexualized schoolgirl aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know that that's what they were going for, but it, it is very, very close to that, and it is uncomfortable. Yeah, I don't, I don't like it one bit. Me either. Um, the doorman is like, oh, she's just a little girl. I'll go offer her my cell phone. Uh, so he talks to her like a child, of course, and like offers her his cell phone. And as he nears her, uh, she puts a gun in his mouth and shoots a guy through him. Uh, taking down everyone in the room very quietly with a silenced pistol uh, while Dave is still at the safe house getting suited up and getting ready to use whatever the fuck this weapon is. Mm-hmm. Um, Hit Girl enters Frank's penthouse and starts killing guys, and as the music kicks in, I have Shrek flashbacks because it's fucking Bad Reputation by Joan Jett. It sure is. I, I wasn't sure how to feel during this scene because I was... Both, like, very entertained at the fact that I heard this song and immediately thought of fucking Shrek 1, uh, or Mm -hmm. the fact that this movie had almost gone on for two hours, and even though I was, for the most part, having a fun time, despite all of my problems with it, uh, it just felt weird to just go for this song at this point in the movie, which should be... It should be a big emotional moment. It shouldn't be undercut by the soundtrack being like, all right, there's a big fun fight scene, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's it's, it's weird. Yeah, it, it's it, it's playing into that sort of like big poppy sort of aesthetic that the movie has in general. I will also say in my own viewing experience, um... It's around this point, maybe a little bit earlier. This has happened to me twice recently while watching uh, HBO Max uh, films on, on that service. In the, the back third of the film, the apparent frame rate of the movie drops significantly. Uh, oh, so boy. I was watching this at like eight frames a second or something. Oh, God. Um, and so everyone just looks kind of herky-jerky and kind of funky. <laughs> That sounds intolerable. I managed to push through it because I couldn't get it to reset. Mm, okay. 
Well, Godspeed, I'm proud of you for making it through. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, the battle rages as the body count grows. Uh, Franks tells his bodyguard to get out there, and his men get ready to take down a supposedly unarmed hit girl. Um, the aforementioned bodyguard decides to grab the bazooka, uh, as he swears he has everything under control, which is one of the jokes that did work for me in this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, just, just cause it's like, she's a little girl. Yeah, well, I, I have it under control. Permission to use this bazooka? Like, okay, yeah, that, that's pretty all right. That's pretty good. You, 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 you get this one point, kickass. You get this one. Frank gives the go-ahead, and Hit Girl is taking fire before she hides in a cupboard. And then Kick-Ass shows up with a Gatling gun-equipped jetpack, and mercilessly just shoots down all of these men, and yep. has zero reaction to doing so. This is the first time in the movie that he has killed anybody, um, and he... To the point of seeing other people get murdered by other people, he has almost always displayed a shocked or upset reaction. But in the moment that he murders these people, he has no qualms with it whatsoever. No qualms, no qualms whatsoever. Um, which I think is just bad writing. I I want. I wish I could get around that. I wish I could just like turn my brain off mm -hmm. and accept it as fun superhero flick, but it really, really bothered me that there's no there's no dialogue about him being like, I just killed a bunch of people and I need time to sit with that. There's none of that. They don't have time. They're literally like rushing you through the end of the movie here. Yeah, the third act really does feel like kind of rushed now that I am thinking about it. Uh, cause they, Big Daddy dies and then they're like, all right, end of the movie time, let's go. Mm -hmm. And then they do. Um, I, I, much as I do not want to sit through a two hour and five minute movie called Kick-Ass, I do think it could use that extra five minutes to grapple with some of its, like, actual problems. But it, it's not interested in that. It wants you to have a good time. Um, but... Essentially, after this, basically, Frank thinks the Gatling gun sound was a bazooka somehow. Mm -hmm. uh, but he's very shortly confronted by Kick-Ass and Hit-Girl. Frank tells Chris to go ahead and fight Kick-Ass. Uh, and the two start fighting in the dojo as Hit-Girl and Frank go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Uh, Hit-Girl uses some improvised weaponry but struggles as Kick-Ass and Red Mist knock each other down in, like, this is probably the weakest uh, fight in the movie, frankly. Yeah, there's something that I kind of like in them, uh, like knocking each other out. But the way that it's all done doesn't feel great. I think part of it is that it is frequently jump cutting between the fight with Red Mist and Kick-Ass and the fight with Hit-Girl and Frank. Um, yep. So... It, the fight with Hit Girl and Frank is the focus of the scene, whereas the one with Kick-Ass feels like an afterthought, which is especially weird because he is the main character of the movie. It's really confusing, right? Because this is where something confusing happens in the movie. I don't know what to say aside from, from that, right? Yeah. Which is that 
Dave, Kickass, is your main character, but your primary antagonist is Frank D'Amico, and all of the emotional energy in going for him is rested in the Damon and Mindy relationship. So that relationship yeah. and their mission is something that Kickass is sort of recruited into, but it's not his place, like, emotionally to be the person to resolve that. And so you need him to fight the person who has been made as a sort of mirror of him or an imposter of him in Red Mist. You know, his um, his uh, his peer, almost. But the way that it, it shakes out, it feels very, very weird and very muddied because there's not all that much actual weight behind their fight. And um, most of it is on the the confrontation with Frank D'Amico, which even then I'd say is maybe a little more weightless than you would want it to be. Yeah, and I think uh, a part of why that is weightless, the, the fight with Frank specifically, mm-hmm. is in due part to the way it ends up playing out. Um, because with the stuff with Chris, like, there is some emotional context there in that, like, mm-hmm. Red Mist did betray Kickass, but also that happened, like, ten minutes ago in the runtime of this movie. Right. Uh, and so there's no time to really sit with that and be like, yeah, no, like, this is a fight that's earned. This happened ten minutes ago, and it's basically just happening because Frank said it should happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas, uh, the fight between Hit Girl and Frank goes on for, like, a little bit longer, but then Hit Girl gets knocked down and, like, incapacitated, and after Kickass and Red Mist knock each other down, Kickass wakes up, uh, apparently has time to go out into the penthouse and grab the bazooka, and then shows up in the room just in the nick of time as Frank is about to kill Hit Girl, and then basically goes, hey, and then shoots him in the fucking stomach with a bazooka that launches him out the window and blows him up. Yeah, it... It's something. It is something. Um, I think the climax in that moment is pretty weak. Uh, Not just because I think the effect of him being blown out of a window with a bazooka is just, like... It's fun, sure, but, like, it doesn't have any real weight to it. It just kind of happens. Yeah, there's, like, a couple of interesting frames in the shot. Like, it it holds a little bit of visual interest for a moment, and that's about it. Yeah. But what I think the real problem here is that it takes the emotional payoff from Hit Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, right, exactly what I was just talking about. Yes, exactly. Um, it completely issues that in favor of Kick-Ass getting his big win and being the big hero, uh, even though all of that work is carried on the back of other people, which is kind of a running theme throughout this movie. I think mm-hmm. the only time uh, that Kick-Ass actually has his own win is that one time outside the diner, uh, like when he fights the bunch of guys chasing the dude, uh, Yep. like when he falls down from the billboard. I think that's the only time in this entire movie that Kick-Ass wins his own fight. Like, you could say that he wins the fight with Red Mist, but I think they both lost that fight. Kick-Ass just woke up first. Yep. Uh, So, I don't know. It's weak. It's really weak. 
they um, decide to go ahead and take the jetpack, which I feel like this would really throw off like the balance of a jetpack. Yep. Uh, but Kickass picks up Hit Girl and they fly off into the night sky across the city, or I guess not the night sky. The sky is the sun is rising. It's the sun is rising, right? And this is a moment where this the whole like very peak of the climax is interesting in that it is a moment where it starts to almost attempt to transcend uh <laughs> I very nearly almost said it attempts to transcend gender which this movie most certainly does not it almost attempts to transcend or shift genre into something that is more um like high flying and there's elements of that right that hit girl and big daddy embody but this is when it almost stops being a superhero's real movie to just being a superhero movie. Yeah. Um it it's this really weird thing where it it really loves to poke fun at like superhero tropes mm-hmm. uh and pretend it's better than them, but then it falls into all of the exact same cliches and tropes that these same superhero movies fall into. Right, and it's also simultaneously, maybe even calling it a superhero movie at the end isn't accurate, but it is like an action movie. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, In a way that a lot of the scrapes, particularly that Dave gets into, is it's playing with genre a little bit differently than that. Yeah. Uh, I... As they are flying out, uh, Red Mist grabs a katana. A bright orange sheath on that thing. Yeah, it looks terrible. It um, does. And at this point, I out loud said, My guy, you don't want to grab the katana. You don't know how to use it. You're going to break it. Because um, God knows this man has not been been trained to use a katana. No. Um, But... Kickass and Hit Girl land on a rooftop across the city, and Hit Girl, Hit Girl tells him that Big Daddy would have been proud of both of them. Uh, he tells her his name is Dave, which she's like, I fucking know that, stupid. Uh, but then she's like, I guess I trust you enough now to tell you my name is Mindy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she has seemingly forgiven him for leading Red Mist to their safe house. Uh, I don't even know if it was ever made clear whether he told them he was bringing Red Mist. It seemed like he didn't. That's what I felt, too. Uh, which makes her trust in him seem even more misplaced. Mm-hmm. But now everything's good now. We're all Gucci. We don't need to fucking reflect on any of the emotional impact of the movie or the trauma of murdering a bunch of dudes. Uh, because it's time to go back to school. Mindy moved in with Marcus and now goes to Dave's school for some reason. Mm-hmm. And does not take other kids' bullshit. Uh, Todd is the only one not in the friend the only one in the friend group who is not currently making out, but he has comics, so that's good enough for him. And there is narration that says that Kickass was gone for now, but many heroes took inspiration from him. Uh, and Red Mist is now orange and appears to be ready for revenge, which ends the movie. Uh, I was praying to God that there would not be a, a post credit scene in this movie, and thank goodness there was not. Yeah, it was before that had super caught on. Yeah, that's fair. Um, 
So yeah, uh, that was kick-ass. We, we made it through. Um, I think it sure was a movie. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at. Like, like I said, there's a lot of like the act of watching the thing, right? That mm-hmm. is pleasurable. There's a lot of stuff that is, if not well, excitingly crafted. Um, it can hold your attention for most of it, but it doesn't rec- demand your attention. Um, so like, it's a great thing to have on, frankly. You can put it on in the background, you'll have a fine time with it. But it is really, really mired in a lot of problematic... Like, there's a lot of jokes that they make, you know, there's this very 2010s humor to the whole thing going yeah. on that is a bit rough. And a lot of those social attitudes are baked into those jokes as well. And mm-hmm. then sort of beyond the social attitudes of the late 2000s, early 2010s, you have these sort of uh, generic, which is to say baked into genre, um, assumptions about like superheroes or action movies or crime there's a bunch of um what i would re- what i would call ideological reproduction that's being done by this movie and uh mm-hmm. other i i didn't come up with ideological reproduction for the audience that's um <laughs> a, a term of analysis i'm not trying to say i invented that uh i realize it might have sounded like that but there's a lot of <laughs> ideological reproduction that's going on here in terms of presenting criminals in a certain way and proposing ideas about how they should best be dealt with. Yeah, it's it's very interested in having the big fun moment and the funny joke rather than any of its actual ideas or politics, which is to be expected, I guess, of this sort of movie. Like sure. it could be on us for trying to like take a deep dive into uh, something that is more meant to be stylish and fun to watch than something like really big and emotional or like that has something to say. Yeah, no one came to Kick-Ass expecting a scathing political critique, but I also, you know, that's that's present. That is being reproduced in the thing, and it's interesting to note when and where that's happening. Yeah, and like, I mean, if, for what it's worth, this is a fucking Bleach podcast. Tackling these kinds of media is kind of what we do. True. Um, <laughs> um, but it, it is still, like, a bit disappointing uh, in some senses to, like, come away from this and feel like I took almost nothing away from it. Yep. Um, it's, it, it feels almost damning because I... I wonder why this got a sequel, uh, other than the fact that it probably did pretty well in theaters, I think. Um, it, I think it did well in theaters, and it's being it's coming out at the ascendant moment of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This comes out in true. 2010, so it's after the success of Iron Man. Uh, I think it might be the same year as Captain America. And then the sequel comes out, I think, in 2013, which is a year after the fucking Avengers. Yeah, that that makes sense. And so you're looking at an interesting point in the market. Fucking market that in quotes, you're looking at an interesting point in the cinema, in movies, in popular culture. Let's call it popular culture where Mm -hmm. superhero stuff is ascendant. But Marvel hasn't 
grabbed so much of an audience and the Disney monopoly hasn't actually um, like calcified and solidified so much that you're not really allowed to make superhero stuff that's not Marvel and have it be remotely commercially viable. I think the fact that this movie was a success was kind of a shock to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But I I think it's also worth noting that this is technically a Marvel film. Uh, Because Kick-Ass, the comic, was actually written uh, under Marvel's uh, print label Icon, I believe? I believe so, yeah. So, even though the large majority of audiences who probably went to see this movie were not familiar with the comic. I know I certainly wasn't when I first watched it. Um, It is technically speaking a Marvel film. And if anybody heard that as Marvel was getting big, they probably went, well, I should probably see this. So I know what's going on in in the universe. Uh, Even if it was, even if it was clear at the time that this was unrelated to the Marvel cinematic universe. Um, now, I do have a question for you, Quinn. Mm-hmm. Did you by chance take a peek at the movie's Wikipedia page before this watch? No, I literally just opened it at this point in our conversation. Uh, so there is a little bit there uh, that says that Vaughn has expressed interest in rebooting the franchise. Yes. <laughs> I mm, I don't want it. I yeah, I don't want that particularly either. That I think would be bad. I think it would be really bad. Like who knows? Maybe maybe he'll fucking knock this one out of the park. Who who knows? Mm-hmm. Um yeah. Oh wow. Okay. So I also want to do an intrusion here, right? And mm-hmm. say um Oh, interesting. So I also noticed that the sequel was directed by a different person. It was directed by Jeff Waddle. Oh, okay. I did not know that. Neither did I. I thought it was also um, Matthew Vaughn. But Kick-Ass was originally published under Marvel, Mm -hmm. under Icon. Then it was republished under Image, and it's a creator-owned series, which means creator-owned is also really, really... um, vague it, it's almost a meaningless term mm-hmm. because a lot of so-called creator-owned comics especially under things like image um and dark horse uh the ownership actually lies a lot more in the corporate entity than it does with the creators but there's a chance that this uh movie was licensed directly to by uh, Miller and uh, John Romita Jr. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, no, that that is interesting, actually. Um, I think I had one last point to touch on before we went ahead and called it. Um, and it, it was mainly because I brought it up to you last night as I was watching the movie. Uh, but I feel like it is probably important to touch down on the concept of real-life superheroes in general. Sure. Um, just because I think, and I I can't say for cert like for certain, but I think it is very possible and even likely that this movie did inspire 
some real life superheroes mm-hmm. um for better or for worse i i think as you told me yesterday like the politics around that are pretty murky um yep. and part of the reason i bring up the possibility for inspiration is because there was a pretty big name here in seattle uh a man who went by the name Phoenix Jones, um, and he was uh, actually arrested about two years ago for like uh, selling MDMA on the streets. Um, to and he sold it to an undercover cop. Allegedly, I do not know that that's actually what happened. Um, but he did get arrested. Uh, the Wikipedia page does not really state explicitly what happened after that point, but he first came. Uh, into action in 2011, uh, which is very, very close to the release of this movie. I don't know for sure that he saw this movie and went, yeah, I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to make that that assumption either. But I do want to say, I think that a movie like this, that is very clearly, if it has anything to say, uh, is saying that Taking matters into your own hands and being a real life superhero is a fucking badass and cool thing to do. And very specifically tackles the topic of real life superheroes as opposed to like the fictional comic book superheroes we see. Mm-hmm. I I would go so far as to call its kind of view almost a bit dangerous. Um I think in the eyes of specific people, it could be taken as an inspiration for them to go out and do these sorts of things that put themselves in massive danger um, mm-hmm. and possibly others in danger. Um, yeah. And I don't necessarily think vigilante justice is a wrong thing to do either, but it is a point where I think there are a lot of people who saw this movie who were probably pretty young when they saw it, because it is a superhero film, even if it is rated R. And people who are young are more easily influenced, especially by the media they watch. I know mm-hmm. this from experience. Um, But I don't know. It's just, it is something I wanted to draw some attention to, and I, I feel it's worth bringing up about the movie. Yeah, and... Like I said, there, there's a lot of complicated politics because, again, uh, a lot of or some of what can happen with real life vigilantes, a lot of it comes down to people trying to intervene in things like uh, drug deals, whatever. There's also the the potential that you have someone um, who's not engaging in um this sort of vigilante policing of their own neighborhoods they might be going outside of their own context in order to do mm-hmm. this yeah so there there's a lot of stuff that could be going on there that is potentially messy yes but yeah i think it's safe to say that like or it's safe to say this relates to those ideas and i think phoenix jones was really popping off in like 2011 like, that's when he, like, yes. really started his thing. So I don't know if he was actually inspired by Kick-Ass or if it was the Ascendant superhero culture at that time or what have you. But I do know that there was 
I think kind of a bubble. There was a documentary that was made in the early 2010s, I believe, about folks who uh, did real life superhero stuff. Okay, I'm 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 probably gonna have to check that out and see what it is because like I don't know that because no documentary is like without its actual viewpoint, right? Like Absolutely, it always yes. has a p- political view, whether it wants to or not. But um, and I I I guess I could say that can be said for most media, if not all. But um, documentary about real life superheroes, especially, could be really messy potentially. Mm-hmm. Yep. But, um, yeah, no, I I just felt it was worth bringing that up and being like, I don't know that this could have been the case, but it definitely could have been. Um, we likely will never know. Um, mm-hmm. and, like, that's okay. But I do think that some of the things this movie says, especially because right at the ending... Uh, it is made very clear that the rise in real-life superheroes has made the world much safer. Like, that is, like, basically a direct quote from the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that kind of thing and the way it handles it could be potentially a problem. And I I hope if the reboot yeah. does happen that it strays away from that. Right, because a big part of the the potential there, right, of real-life superhero stuff is you wind up in situations, some of which are, like, shown in the film. You know, you wind up stabbed. Um, mm-hmm. Phoenix Jones was stabbed at one point, I believe. Um, yes. And you can also escalate things, right? You can make things worse in the way that you intervene. But it's hard to say. Like... It's a it's a complicated thing. Uh, you could be exposing yourself and others to more danger by intervening. And it's complicated. It's a very complicated sort of issue. Yeah, it it is very very complicated, and I I don't feel I'm necessarily like the most well educated on the subject in particular. Same. I, I don't feel like you could um I, I, I certainly don't want to be speaking as a an expert or anything. Yeah, for sure. I I don't either. I don't want any of what I have just said about like real life superheroes to be taken as like necessarily fact. Yep. Or like, you know, the right way to think about it. I just I figured it was really worth bringing up in the context of this movie and like worth you know our listeners like at least taking some time to think about it you know absolutely yeah hold hold this stuff in consideration exactly exactly but with that uh my recording is now reading at like two and a half hours we have gone longer than the runtime of kick-ass as is tradition yeah i've got the attempted starts that we had from earlier so i'm almost at three hours here (laughs) yeah we had like three or four attempted starts where my audacity was just fucking giving me the business um but uh the (laughs) the last briefest aside i promise this will not linger uh I, I realize we started to say how this this stupid idea formed uh, and then never actually went into it because Audacity started fucking up. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, um, so I, I was just talking to Quinn the other week. Uh, I was playing me some Guitar Hero, you know, as I do. 
I was showing them the uh, the sick new tapping pattern I had learned because I'm finally fucking learning through the fire and the flames. Um, and <laughs> at one point, Quinn says to me, that's pretty kick-ass. And I go, I hate that this makes me want to watch the movie Kick-Ass. And it all just sort of spiraled downhill from there. Went from there, for sure. Um, as with all things in this podcast, it all starts with a fucking joke. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's how it should be. I think that's how I live my best life and end up watching terrible movies like this. I guess I shouldn't say terrible movie. I think this movie has some good points, but, like, you know, it's 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 mediocre at best. Sure, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> that is why the... Intro and outro music is through the fire and flames. Uh, I never told Sam that this is what we were doing. This is going to show up <laughs> in his podcast feed on Tuesday, and he's going to be like, oh my fucking god, what did they do? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think that's how it should be. I think that's how any good co-host relationship should be. Oh, sure. Uh, Absolutely. You take a week <laughs> off and, you know, you get surprised by a kick-ass episode. The timing just worked out. We were trying to figure out when we could do this because we were thinking about doing it in between episodes, but Sam ended up taking a week off this week, and I remembered that, and I'm like, okay, let's just do it here so there's not an off week. So at least you guys get something to listen to. Uh, <laughs> whether that's something you, is something you enjoy or not remains to be seen, but uh, it is something, and I, I'm happy with that. But, uh, you know, you can find the show on Twitter at BleachCast. You can find me on Twitter at Lavender underscore Paws. Uh, I haven't been streaming recently, but you can find me on Twitch at, uh, on the channel Lavender Paws with no underscore there. Uh, I'll hopefully be getting back to that soon. Yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter at MonkeyPieQuinn. That is M-O-N-K-I-P-I-Q-U-I-N-N. Um, I have some podcasts. Most of them are on some form of hiatus. Um... I'm continuing to guest here, and I might wind up streaming again. I, I very, very rarely stream uh, on Twitch. I believe it's also at MonkeyPie, M-O-N-K-I-P-I. Uh, yeah, that's that's me. All right. Well, thank you all for listening to this extra-length episode on a topic that you did not come here to hear about. Uh, I hope you all have a great week, and, you know, love you guys. Stay cool chats. Stay cool, Chads. Stay cool, Chads.